Hello and welcome to Scopy Radio. My name is Daniel Johansson. And I'm Maureen Smith. And we are joined by the incomparable Fletcher Pearson. Thanks How for having you? me. Yeah. Great. Very. So this is what we've already been talking quite a bit about like, wow, we both do podcasts. Like it's going to be so interesting. And right away, that was the fastest that we've gotten to like, thanks for having me. I was like ready to fill in the time between me finishing your name and you saying something. You were on it. Killing it. Professional. Thank you. Yeah. So, so, uh, I've already kind of hinted at it, but uh, we, you run a podcast as well <coughs> called Some Small Magic. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Well, and so we were talking about it a bit, and what I'm loving is, um, I'm like jumping topic to topic. This is what I always do. Hey, but- Daniel, take a breath. We're gonna, we're gonna get to everything. We have an hour. That's a long time. Yeah. So. Well, so we met at the Goodman. We saw a show together. Yeah. Eight of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so we, the Criticism in a Changing America boot camp. I keep calling it a workshop for some reason. Boot, boot camp was the language they used. Yeah. But it's, I don't know. It was interesting. I mean, like, yeah. how did you find out about it? I think it just showed up in my Facebook feed. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll apply for that. Yeah. So on the last day that they were taking applications, I like slammed through the application and I was like, I don't write anything. So I would just like put a link to my iTunes page and I was like, here's what I do. Yeah. Maybe take me. Right. And then I got an email back a week later and they were like, come on in. And I was like, great. So yeah. I did it and it was it was great. Well, and that's the thing is, like, a lot of the folks were writers. Mm-hmm. And so it was interesting. I mean, because, like, I, I write, but the I remember the first day I was like, I, I don't really... It's going to be interesting for me because the writing that I do is mostly, right now at least, is for the magazine. And so much of it is, like, truly objective. Just being, like... Because at our point, we know that... Our, like, at this point, we know our audience are mostly arts folks. But we're also trying to, like, kind of do politics stuff. So... For me, it's always just, like, base level. Here's what's going on politically. Now get on with your arts lives, you know? And so it was super interesting to go from that perspective to um, to folks that, like, like Aaron Shea Brady and uh, Kevin and Amanda, who all, like, directly are writing about shows, like, once or twice a week or more. I don't know how, actually, often I'm excited to, like, learn that about people. Mm-hmm. Um, Sorry. No. So I have a question as a person who was not at the workshop. Um, what was the application? What was the application process? It was a really simple, like digital form, which was initially really off-putting because it didn't correspond to the requirements that they listed on the page about the workshop. Yeah. Um, so they wanted your name, your pronouns. I think whether they it was your hella inclusive. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. So, they, yeah, they want your name and your pronouns, two references, the relationship of those references to you. And on the initial page about it, it was like, we want a writing sample and a personal statement. Yeah. And then in the application, it said that you could write a writing sample or a personal statement. And I was like, great, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, but it was it was very direct and it took me like, I don't know, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it was like... I, the first post I'd ever seen about it, and I kind of like searched through about any kind of history on it, was days before the due date. Mm-hmm. Like it was like 
Which which is also interesting because the folks that you had that applied for it are all people that are like comfortable meeting a deadline, right? Which is which was weird. I mean, and cool, but um, it it was just weirdly perfect because the that's the thing that I that struck me right away was just all of the folks like I we want to get everybody from the sh- from that on the podcast and just like even now getting a chance as a person who I mean just so many there are just so many thoughts as a person that isn't super familiar with the theater scene and is starting to be and coming from the opera scene like just how yeah it's like standard for something like that to ask for your pronouns because the theater community is like has been fighting with like that's the because the other aspect of the um of the boot camp was that it was unofficially probably the a response to the hetty weiss thing unofficially yes yeah. that but that was definitely the tone and that was like very clearly the inciting incident mm-hmm. and that like the fact that kind of the collapse of quote unquote traditional criti- theater criticism in america which is like now older white writers is turning out to be like a pretty big issue because they have like pretty deeply rooted conservative values even though they work in a really progressive art form and those conservative values are sometimes like racist and sexist Mm -hmm. and transmisogynist and it's like hey we do this thing that is i think we like to pride ourselves as like one of the most progressive creative outlets in theater and like if we want to do that successfully then we want our criticism the criticism of our work to be willing to like step into that progressive zone with us Mm -hmm. and you know accept who we are etc yeah and there were kind of like there were undercurrents that kind of people were talking about and thinking about like the idea of um of you know how much cultural context do you need the audience to to bring into reading your review um yeah and uh and the other side of it too was that we got to see a bunch of new theater at the Goodman. We got to do the to see all the performances for their new stages production. Uh, not what is it like a fest like a weekend? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then we also got to see uh, a view from the bridge, the Arthur Miller play, which was the thing because that's double end of the like um, double end. I don't know what even that means. But like the other side of the like that whole thing is that I'd never seen an Arthur Miller play. I've only seen opera adaptations because there's a couple like there's a crucible setting and there is I think there's also a view from the bridge setting which I, I haven't seen that one but um but I've heard like uh, an aria or two from it mm-hmm. um so like on that point like I'd really never seen like high budget high production level theater um and so coming out of a view from the bridge because I remember it was like you, me, and Kevin sitting next to each other. I was like, whoa, that was really high production level. And I hadn't had a chance to like think of the details yet of like how I really felt about all the nuances of it. And then immediately it was like an hour spent outside of the Goodman with just like folks be like pick like Aaron Brady had like Shay Brady had like one of the most nuances, nuanced feminist takes on like the the I like perspective of female audience member that made it like that completely flips the entire thing on its head and it's that kind of thing where it's like this is where criticism can be really powerful you know which is like i i guess i guess that's the that was the hope right Mm -hmm. of the yeah anyway what are you what are you thinking about um i'm i'm just reliving 
standing outside the, the good middle because i was like let's go for a walk like it's a gorgeous night and also yeah. like let's get away from the theater so we all stepped directly through the doors right outside the theater and just stood there yeah. in front yeah. of the Goodman for like 40 more minutes talking about the show. Well, because there's the feeling too, even when you're s- sitting next to the people, there was the feeling of like, we, no one would talk about it in the theater, even though like most of the things that people had to say were good. But it was just, yeah, it's super interesting like that. Yeah, and just generally, I'm like, um, still, it's interesting to talk about all of it because so much happened. And also like, I'm still living on the adrenaline of like, the glass this so for like back other background part piece um daniel cut his leg yeah and it was gnarly looking at first and then it all it just ended up being not that bad yeah but you know i don't know anyway um i'm wondering so as two podcasters so as two people who practice like spoken journalism what was your take what was your like ultimate takeaway of this um, initially, like, writing, writers bent, you know, two-weekend intensive. Like, what what did you take away as two orators? Yeah, I, I think I took less away from it as an orator and more as a, like, what I do with my oration. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, so, like, I am not a critic. I am kind of, like, a journalist with a very archival bent, Mm-hmm. So it was less about being around other writers and more about being people who had who specialized in writing their opinions. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That was I think that was actually how we bonded the first day was because the first meeting or whatever I was like, yeah, it's it's interesting for me coming to a space like this cuz I don't do a lot of subjective writing. And so um I appreciate theater reviews and I appreciate reviewing and criticism in general. Um but it's not something I'm super familiar with and how do you get objectivity and where does that where is the balance between objectivity and and opinion and then it kind of the i think conversations coming back to it were different later but i remember that meeting specifically the note ended up being like well you can't achieve objectivity in art ever and it was like all right and then you came up to me after and you were like i i think this i i agree with you ultimately and i think we're gonna like have an interesting workshop like for the rest of this period mm-hmm. oh I wanted to cross my knee. I nothing unplugged besides my own headphone, which is kind of impressive. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. I'm like, I you know, adrenaline is a hell of a drug. Mm-hmm. Just like. Yeah. Um, I'd love to hear about your podcast, Fletcher. I so like how like how long has it been going? Like you know what led you? You know what was the the kind of like spark? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so my podcast is called Some Small Magic. I have been publishing it since Valentine's Day of this year. Uh, oh my god! Us, Are you serious? Us fucking too. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah. That's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. that's super cool. <laughs> that's, that's so, so good. Weird. That's so cool. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So so it came out on Valentine's Day. The first episode came out and I did not tell anyone about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I waited for the second episode to come out 2 weeks later on like the 1st of March, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. that sounds right. Um 
and and that's when I told people about it once I had the second episode um I yeah so I um I'd been thinking about it since January and January was like when I really committed to doing it Mm -hmm. and I hadn't been thinking about doing a podcast for a long time, but I had been thinking about the problems that I wanted it to solve for a long time. Mm -hmm. And those problems were that I didn't go to college. So I like had no network of like professors or creative mentors aside from people I'd worked with. And there were a lot of really cool people that I wanted to meet and get their thoughts on various things. So I was also really lonely and I wanted an excuse to travel. So I was like, what if I just do a show where I get to ask people all these like very bizarre kind of impractical questions about art and they they give me answers about mm-hmm. them. Um, so uh, in January, I, I was at the I was at a, a cohort at the International Puppetry Festival called Catapult. I'm going to. I'm going to put a pin in that and make you come back to that later. Good. Cool. Um, <laughs> so uh, I was like, I just like decided to do it kind of that weekend. And I was sitting next to Bonnie Duncan, who is a really just phenomenal artist. And I was like, I'm starting an interview series. Also, I'm going to be in Boston, where she's from in March. Do you want to be on it? And she said, yeah, sure. And I was like, well, I've committed, so I got to follow through on this now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I ended up interviewing Bonnie when I went to Boston. She's the fourth episode. Uh, yeah. Um, and that was that was like a really fun, like, oh, I actually made this happen kind of moment. Mm-hmm. Um, what else do you want to know about it? Kind of like the, like the structure and, um, you know, what... Because you said that you knew what problems you wanted solved was that just like loneliness or was that it yeah. was lon- <laughs> yeah i mean that was, that was my own problems yeah. about like having access to creators yeah um, less about the content of the <laughs> these cats today i cannot it's always the weather changes is the thing yeah, this is super our podcast. It's just tangents and tangents and well, because I really love the um, I like talking with other podcasters because I get to actually talk about the like. I love the fact that this is so momental. Like, like it's just like it's just when I first started doing interviews and first started doing that I have a very similar situation I wanted to just meet all of the professors at Roosevelt and mm-hmm. meet and just talk to them about their art and stuff um, and it was I would do an hour interview like this with them and then I wouldn't ever do anything I don't even know where those recordings are anymore yeah um, and so when I was like we're gonna start a podcast I was like I, first off I don't wanna have to do a lot of editing cause like I want to do a bunch of it and I just want to put it out there. But then I was just like, I want it to be like those weird recordings where the first 10 minutes I'm a little nervous and like, you know, whatever. And like, there are just like things that you remember about it that I, anyway, like mm-hmm. I, I like that it's because that's what journalists do. Like that's this hour long batch of content is like what the, what journalism is like at, when you think about it from an interview, like interview journalists specifically, like that's that's a move that moves over to like just transcribing the entire thing, and then that's the copy for like an, a magazine article or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like this format is not 
like it's tried and true forever and ever and like the idea of doing interview podcasts mm-hmm. is like it's not it's not really reinventing the wheel it's just taking something into a different format entirely um so sorry yeah what were you gonna say so what was the problem that you wanted solved yeah the the, <laughs> the problem that i wanted solved was like i i wanted to be meeting creators who who had a body of knowledge that they had created for themselves mm-hmm. yeah so like not just artists who i were working who i was working with because like at that time i was working with uh, a much younger group of artists than i had been previously and i wanted i wanted to go back to people who had like kind of like war stories and and had figured out what worked for them uh and now that i'm yeah i also wanted to learn audio editing and how to interview and now that i now that i think about it this whole thing wanting to to speak to professors and people who had a body of work behind them to to draw from came from an earlier project when i was developing a puppet show that is now like it's like still still sort of in development called ghost show um and uh i had like a lot of really particular questions about like the ethics of creating a piece um or or subjecting uh an audience to a piece that like they do not expect to be happening around them Mm. and i needed older artists with more experience to talk about that with Uh, and i ended up not doing that and but some of those questions kind of sort of made it into my first question set which now i really don't even use anymore Mm mm-hmm so you started out with a with a prescribed set of questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I when I first started the show, I have I had a list of like ten questions, and over the first four or five episodes, that grew to like fifteen. Mm-hmm. And I would ask, depending on how the flow went, anywhere between all of them to like seven. Mm-hmm. And as I got more experience interviewing, and as my intent with the show shifted, I I started using the question set a lot less. And now, like, in the last two episodes that I've recorded, I haven't used it at all. And, Sorry, yeah. And it's it's really weird listening to those interviews now, because I'm like, I'm not sure this is the same show. It's weird when you start... Get, as a journalist starting getting to the point where you feel like you can riff it because mm-hmm. then there are some days where you just don't have it like yeah it's it, like and there are days where you're like oh i'm on but like for folks that listen to the show, show probably may have noticed this by now but there are some days where i'm like there are five directions i want to go with you and i can't pick one mm-hmm. and like that's it's such a such a interesting skill set to like you first off it's interesting though that the people that i know that are very good at it are folks that did it because they wanted to it's hard to like as opposed to being forced into podcasting at gunpoint or like (laughs) (laughs) yeah or like there's like a way to study it in school i guess is what i mean you know your perspective it must be encapsulated (laughs) yeah get in the booth (laughs) yeah Yeah, i don't know Um, give this person your attention and care (laughs) ask them what makes them tick yeah (laughs) Edit it and make them sound really good. Uh, yeah. Do it. <laughs> oh my 
Um, this is a random question. I'm wondering what the first question of that question set was. Like, what kicked it off? Oh, I don't, I don't know what the first, first question was, but I mean, like in, in the order, in, in the order they're written, it's designed to be read in that order. Okay. And part of the reason I stopped using it was because I got better at realizing when I was becoming redundant Mm. and when I was asking questions that had already been answered Mm -hmm. in part of another question. And... I think like the sheer embarrassment of being redundant is what got me to stop using the question set so much. And I don't know, like, I, I don't think I can trace it to a particular moment, but I remember where I was like, I asked the question and internally I was like, I already have that answer. Yeah. And I was like, fuck, now I've just like made this person sort of repeat themselves, but not with like enough of a twist to get something new out of it. Yeah. And I was like, I just have to start listening better. Um, but yeah. the, so, so the, que- the original question set is designed to go in an order and it starts with an introduction and asking what their practice is and then moving into their own personal story of like how they got into art and like how that has evolved, um, what their process looks like, how their process has changed there's some questions that I haven't asked in a while that I wish I had the guts to ask again, but I like have have been having trouble wording them appropriately. And the one that I'm like most interested in that I feel I I feel I do not ask enough is uh how how the work that they thought they would be doing yeah, how the work that they thought they would be doing has changed from what it is. Mm. And, like, those alternate universe deviations from, like, five years ago, did you think you would be doing this? And if mm-hmm. not, what was it and why? That's a super cool question. And I don't ask it because it's terrifying. Why? <laughs> oh, that's such a good question. It is a really good question. Like, I want to like, answer it. Like, if you yeah. were to ask me that, I would want to answer it. That's a hard. Sick. It's a hard question to word, though, because the, th- the thing is, like, there are some good questions that are good questions because people that ask questions recognize that it's a good question. But there are some questions that are good questions but are hard to explain because they're like a questioner's question. Yeah. <laughs> that even makes sense. Yeah, and I, I actually have one of those that I I tried to ask a few times and I only got it right in the interview once and I had to like go back and listen to that interview and write down exactly how I said it Mm -hmm. so that I could ask it that exact same way again. Mm -hmm. And I think it's like, um, Oh, I, I, yeah. Like I can't even think how to word it properly, but it's, it's something like it's, it's along the lines of, uh, tell me about the moments where you learned something that have changed the foundation of your practice. Okay. That's also a great question. And, but, so the other thing is, do you send questions ahead of time? Never. Yeah, that's the other thing, because, like, that's the kind of question that someone may hope that. I, and I'm sorry to also, like, give you more weight to doubt your own questions. That's not what I mean <laughs> to do totally at all. It's totally fine. Like, no. I, it's, but I'm no, no, just, no, because I, I think fun. about doing it almost every time yeah and to the point that i'm i'm very close to doing it now because part i mean part of the magic of the show for me is getting and like it's feedback i've gotten right after the interview of like oh i never get to think about this stuff Mm -hmm. thank you for like allowing me the space to think about these questions yeah 
And sometimes I think like if I sent them ahead, I would get a more interesting and more, more publishable answer, but I wouldn't get that moment of them like stopping and thinking about it. Yeah. Which sometimes I cut, like, I have to cut the silence out of the episode. But for me, I get to live that moment. And that's that's why this whole show is, like, very selfish for me. Um, I See, I <laughs> love that moment in the same way and keep it in to the podcast quality's detriment. Yeah. And I, that, I think I, I am self... When we were in that podcasting class at the Goodman, was self-conscious about that the entire time. Cause it's cause it's not perfectly sound in in this space and it shouldn't be like mm-hmm. it can't be. There are cats like romping around. Yeah, and there so are, the like, second of and... silence, you can hear a little. You can hear some nonsense. Like, yeah, it doesn't sound like someone deeply thinking about the next thing they're gonna say. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know. Right into the show. Let me know if it doesn't <laughs> sound. Maybe um maybe we're overthinking it, and I'll let you know what people say if anybody says anything. Thank or, you. I don't know. Um. Oh man, I get so many. Do you have a good? Do you have a good question right off the top of your head? Um. Well, I mean, we we can go into what I wanted, what I almost got into before we started recording, but cut myself off. So, what Daniel and I have noticed in we've done like a hundred forty four episodes. episodes. So we've talked to around because we've had some repeat people. We've talked to around a hundred thirty people. Mm-hmm. Um. And what what I've noticed is that we'll get like little arcs where we'll ultimately come back to like common themes and it, it doesn't matter who we're talking to, like we'll end up asking very similar questions. Like I remember the first arc that we kind of had was talking about balancing art and work. Um and and then it and then it went into Chicago as an artistic scene. What, no, that um, wasn't the next one. The next one was like the next one was like accessibility. Accessibility as a buzzword, and how do you unpack that, and what does it actually mean? Yeah, and for me, that always has to do with racial implication. Because like, if your tickets aren't, and I always come back to ticket affordability for that. Because like, because and well, and then it specifically went into ticket affordability. Affordability recently, randomly, it's been about nonprofit status. But, Which has way more to do with with us, us trying to figure out our shit. Well, I, I I think I talked to you about this where <laughs> I was like, I we're not going to go nonprofit. I think we're starting a nonprofit, but it's that's not us. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But so I'm wondering, I'm wondering if that is something that you have noticed that like in in groups of interviews, if like you where your head is at has leaked into that. So, because I was working with a question set for so long, they would all kind of be formatted the same. But, I mean, every every answer was pretty different. And as I got better at listening, each interview would get more different from the last. Mm-hmm. However, there was one question that I haven't used... I didn't use it all in season two because, like, three episodes deep in season one or like by the end of season one everyone i had asked it to had given me almost exactly the same answer Mm -hmm. so i just cut it Mm -hmm. and it was something i was interested in but i was like if i'm just gonna get the same answer to this then there's no point talking about it anymore and like in the archive of the show the point has been made um 
Yeah. Well, so what was that question? I honestly don't remember. I, I... <laughs> yeah. No, but that actually super makes sense to me because that's very similar to... I, I could, mean... I could pull it up. Yeah. I mean, because I think, you know, part of it, of doing something where you do an interview series or an interview show is that over the course of time, you're trying to learn something, like you're personally trying to learn something, you know? Like, I feel like I'm constantly trying to and you know some of the people that you have on like are just you know yeah so knowledgeable about how theater works or how uh do you specifically talk to theater professionals or like artists at large i it skews theater um yeah everyone i've interviewed is a performer in some way Mm -hmm. yeah Cool. cool nice yeah that's awesome so thanks yeah. <laughs> what uh what's your mic setup <laughs> it's a it's a zoom h5 with cool. uh what it i yeah so i gave that to them and i was using a, a sony lapel mic which had a a quarter inch jack into uh, a quarter inch to XLR adapter, which I would plug into the base of the, mm-hmm. the Zoom. Um, you like that? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. So, so one model up from that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I use. That was me. So my computer was almost just full. So the podcast, you can't hear that on the podcast, but for those at home listening, there was I deleted, I emptied my trash. Okay. <laughs> so everybody else heard that and was like, "What?" And then, yeah sorry but yeah so i love the zoom so that's what i have too but i mm-hmm. use the h4n specifically and we just got that so we um two weeks ago we've talked about this on the show already uh but i'm telling you because you deserve to know uh we had a two channel microphone and it broke and so that was we only actually two had like, weeks ago it must have been like a month ago no i think it was two and a half weeks ago yeah because like aaron who's coming back on the show asked me about it and that was like a few days ago huh Aaron Hunt is our next episode. Leak. Spoiler. Um, anyway, so, but yeah, so we actually just had like a mini fundraiser for that and we're able to pick up the eight channel mic, the mixer that we have now. And I got this specifically, the two channel H4N, because I need, I use whenever I do like, because two channels, when you're doing traveling stuff, that's really all you need. Yeah. You can get a lot done. And like I do a lot of like audition recordings and stuff like that and so even recording music like we just did when we did the philippines concert last week we used just two channels and that's if you're just getting area that's really all you need did you get the question that yeah so the question that i just don't bother asking anymore is uh why do you continue to make art because it was like always the same answer pretty much it was always Mm -hmm. like it's what I love and I wouldn't want to do anything else. And mm-hmm. I was like, great. Then we don't need to talk about it anymore. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. 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 Cool. Cool. <laughs> I'm just really enjoying this. This is just like very nice, you know? Yeah. It's a nice day. Are you enjoying the weather change? Yeah. Uh, my apartment is freezing. So I got all bundled up in like a big coat and walked outside and I was like, oh, it's really nice out. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, whatever, I'll just get on the bus. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to finally have fall. Yeah. I have a question. Yes. The thing I put a pin in. Yes. Puppetry. What about it? 
do you practice puppetry? Yes. How long have you how long have you been practicing puppetry? Um, going on two years now. So I started in January of last year with a class taught by Roughhouse, and who's a puppet theater here in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And on this maybe the first week, but I think the second week, I was like, hey, do you need help? And they were like, yeah, we'll think about it. So they gave me an internship, and I assistant directed Ubi the King, which has been now, you know, critically acclaimed and toured, and has been just a huge blast um, to do. It's an adaptation of Alfred Jerry's Ubu Roi uh, by Shelley Geisler and Mike Oleon, and we yeah so like we got a cast for that in march of 2016 we started rehearsals in april and then we had our first show at the end of july they took it on tour for 10 days they came back we did a a month-long run at the chopin in september and then we've remounted it three times since then so we've been doing that show. Finally, it's like kind of in hibernation, but we did that show for just under an entire year. Oh my god! And yeah, in production, we, we we worked on it for a year and like three months. That's crazy. Yeah, that's just how puppetry is, mm-hmm. because you have to build all the objects. A lot of nearly all puppeteers and like pretty much all puppet companies write their own shows from scratch Mm. because no one is writing shows just for puppets that's a damn shame yeah it is (laughs) so um so the production cycle on puppet shows is like usually around or upwards of two years and then you just do it until you die and then like you you get you get all the money from that show that you can uh-huh. you build another show you do that show and then like maybe you revive the other show or like you keep building shows that go on for years and years and years and you keep all the objects you keep them in your repertory um like yeah that's that's what i did december of last year is i wrote the ubu bible which is a line by line puppeteer by puppeteer breakdown of every action in the show so that conceptually anyone can pick up that document and the objects and learn how to do the piece. So we can just install new puppeteers into the show and keep it alive when other puppeteers that we've already taught tracks to want to go off and do other things, which we've done now. So we we replaced one actor because she was doing a different puppet show <laughs> um, when we were in the International Festival in January. And then we replaced two actors for when, yeah, our production at the Pivot Arts Festival. And then we replaced an additional actor on top of that um, when we took it to national in July of this year. Wow. What led you to try puppetry? So I've always just thought it was really cool. But also, uh, my mom is a director and stage manager for opera and has been for i mean like that that was like her whole artistic career pretty much and then she had me and then she didn't do any opera for a while and then she went back to doing opera 
And as you know, like there's a lot more object work in opera yeah. than there is in regular theater with like big puppets kind of, or like masks yeah. or like big objects that are characters. So I always, and also she's a visual artist. So I just grew up with art in our home. Um, and as I got older, I, I like, I've been doing theater my whole life. As I got older, I got more and more interested in movement theater and like movement based practices. And I was like, oh, puppets is visual art and also like hardcore movement. So I'd want to do more of that. And it's been a great time. So. Wow. I had to, I didn't even know that about you. That's so cool. Um, yeah. Uh, so wait, how long have you lived in Chicago? Two years now. Okay, cool. Yeah. And yeah. So- going on three. Did you move here for a job or to just to get into the scene or? Uh, yeah, I, I was planning on moving here kind of, uh, got an internship confirmed, got, and then like set my plans, got another internship confirmed after I was like already ready to come. Mm-hmm. Um, so is it, yeah. So I was at Chicago dramatists for five months. That sounds right. And the artistic home for seven and met roughhouse like kind of in that time met walkabout in that time just like started meeting theater people cool um so yeah i i came to chicago for the theater definitely and you mentioned earlier that you didn't go to college um was that a like a deliberate like i i'm wondering like what led you to the decision to not attend uh from like as early as sophomore year as high school i like i knew i really did not want to go um Mm -hmm. i was really good at high school and Mm -hmm. like school in general and i like i love learning etc and i i know that the college would have presented like a very different challenge to like traditional schooling but i wanted to do something completely different and see if i could make it happen Mm -hmm. so i was the first year i was in chicago i was actually like technically deferred from new college of florida and in february i just decided that i was not gonna go back or Mm -hmm. or go at all and stayed um so yeah it was it was a deliberate choice and also i was like pretty set on never going into debt ideally (laughs) so that's the yeah um (laughs) but then as that's the thing because that we had a couple people mention talk about at the i don't mean to bring it back to the goodman thing but a few people talked about j school mm-hmm. and it's like uh, you know i um, i consider myself a pretty solid journalist at this point and like i went to school for opera and i mean i got like, a couple courses but like like getting a degree in journalism i mean it's yeah. like what's the i mean you learn ap as a writer you learn ap style i, I mean i don't know if anybody i don't think there were any like bigger like journalists that listen to the podcast but if there are and you have a have a beef i don't know uh, anyway sorry uh but my what was my point here do you know where i was going with this i forgot now uh just like the 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 allure of school of schooling i think it says a lot that the way that that you um thought about it of like i mean a season is of of your show that you've now done in so you've done three seasons since february 14th i've done i've completed two seasons and we're working on the third season right now right yeah 
um, in the course of, I mean, it's for us, same, what, it's been like nine months? Something like yeah, that. Yeah, almost. Yeah. 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 It's like getting there. the amount of, I mean, I've been, before I started this show, I knew a lot of people in Chicago from working in opera, but there are just so many folks now that are like trying to build, it's like building this bigger network of artistic folks that we like, that's the other thing that another theme that we keep coming back to. And I think we might've talked about this too. Um, but is the idea of like making local Chicago something on like a national scale. Instead of like the place that you go to get to New York or the right. place that you go to get to Los Angeles. Right. Chicago itself, the unique what what makes Chicago Ch- unique. Chicago as endgame. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's super, super interesting. Um Do you have um aspirations to um like is that is, is ow nah um how do you view Chicago as like a as a as a place that you inhabit? Like is this the place that you want to be like or or do you see it as and like this isn't me like I'm not going to like w- no matter what answer it's not going to be like you're an asshole but <laughs> I'm wondering like do you see it as a place to get to another place or do you see it as your place? I have a really weird relationship with I mean, like, kind of just, like, living anywhere of every every time I'm like, man, I think I should leave. I just, like, take a moment and stop. And I'm like, this is incredible that I get to be here at all. So Chicago is where I want to be, and I, I'm here to grow. I would never want to do L.A. or New York, but just kind of like the weird thing and like this is a trend with other puppeteers also a friend of mine who i met at this cohort and i are just both like we just want to have a farm and this is this is a repeated trend like with double edge now with children of the wild who started at double edge and is now buying a farm or like cohabitating this farm in wisconsin right outside of duluth where i was born actually um yeah, like Sandglass, Bread and Puppet, who are just like in the middle of nowhere in New England. There is this trend of people who do this like very weird thing or like movement focused work. And they like go to a city and train and they're like, all right, let's go be in the woods. Mm-hmm. And they just go to the woods forever. <laughs> and, <laughs> and this is this is a problem. This is the thing that I like have to think about constantly of like, Am I ready to go to the woods? Well, I'm, I, I know I'm not ready to go to the woods, but I think about getting to that point of like, when I am ready to go to the woods, do I really want to go to the woods or do I want to like do the woods work here in the city? Because like, I don't want to, I don't want to literally saying out loud thoughts I've had. Yeah. (laughs) I don't want to lose this access because like, I'm, I am not from, uh, like super urban areas Mm -hmm. um and i like i i think about like the the other people who i started doing theater with when i was a kid from our like really small rural town in west michigan who have like gone out to cities because this is what they love and they like they want to keep doing this Mm -hmm. and i think about like wow i could not go back to not having access to major cultural institutions Mm -hmm. But wow, 
I really just want to roll around in a field mm. with a big puppet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> so like, and this is this is like a, a big thing that Tale happens to all puppeteers. All time. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like all all the other mid twenties or younger puppeteers who I know are thinking about this, <laughs> and like we can't figure out what the solution is. I think that's an interesting. I think that's an interesting concept. The idea of like, like different art forms kind of having different end games. You know what I mean? Like for opera, the end game I would say is like, is like New York or I mean like international like, travel. Yeah, international travel or like maybe Los Angeles if you like want to do weird, weird shit. Um, but I think that the idea of like puppetry like your end game is the is the woods is like i I, you know there's there's art for every space is what i take away from that yeah and and part of the weird thing about puppetry is that like we can't just go to the woods and keep living we go to the woods and like we live in the woods and make our woods work and then ideally we find some curator like halfway across the globe to fly us to like the middle of europe and like keep us on the Mm avant-garde and like keep us circulating in the contemporary art scene and then we go back to the woods and make another show so whenever it's it's this very bizarre blend of like right now the generation that's like having the success of like hippies who live in who live on a farm Uh and make their puppetry or their movement work or whatever and also are like constantly bopping around between like high very high level european performance art scenes and like american arts organizations that have the money to curate national groups mm-hmm. and then they're like great we've done this for a few months back to the farm that's and cr- and like that's the ideal <laughs> that's the ideal that's cr- that sounds um, jarring, like just mindset wise, like going from, well, because like, is it like a, I have a lot of questions. Is it like a fully functioning farm <laughs> or like, are there like animals? That depends. That depends. Okay. I mean, uh, or is it just a rural homestead? So, I mean, like, I I will not speak for all movement practitioners who live on farms, but, like, Double Edge has a farm with cows. Okay. And, like, part of the practice is taking care of the land, which is great. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, So. I'm so, I've said to Maureen before, I was like, so, because there are, like, a lot of visions that I see for, like, Scoppy's Endgame, and I'm like, man, we could just set up a farm. (laughs) Set up a yeah, but I don't think the thing is there's no precedent for podcasting on a farm. It's a it's It's you. Yeah, I guess we you have to start it. We could break the wheel. That 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 old podcasting wheel. I think it's interesting though (laughs) that tried and true podcasting wheel. Right. Yeah. Well, no, I I I super think it's interesting from a a producing standpoint because a place like that is where you go to develop 
a production of something you go you want a space like that like if you're working with an artist specifically about like writing an album that's like so because we, we know a lot of folks that are that are that will be putting together albums for whatever reason and that's that's where a space like that is more much more useful where it's like where did you write this album oh i wrote it at scabby magazine's farm i would wake up and i would yep. and i would feed the chickens and then i would write for four hours and then i would eat the dream for me is building for scabby is building a bridge between the farm and the city i yeah. want to a physical bridge yes yep. that just you could walk on one. Yeah. yeah i mean like you talk to elon musk you get that hyperloop going right you just like farm to city in 20 minutes yeah. do you um <laughs> do you are that do you like uh facebook meme pages at all uh, I'm not on them, but I see various memes on my feed through people who are on them, yeah. and I, you know, they're relatively high quality. <laughs> well, because post, what's the one I always cite? My new favorite one: post transit memes for urban contemporary teens, or something like that. Something or like that. I, po- I, anyway, the, the... I'm not in meme groups, but meme groups are a very large part of my life. <laughs> from Daniel, just like I, I really like what meme makers are thinking about i'm not necessarily like super into meme culture but i think it's there's a lot of uh i was thinking about this like the radical radicalization politically and um radicalization of art form are very similar and so like as we're kind of like developing different memeing art forms and stuff like that like yeah there's a lot of a lot of thinking and there's also like a lot of bad thinking not bad but kind of like I have a question that is the exact opposite of that thought. Yeah. Um, And that is about kind of unplugging. Um, So I I imagine that part of being a puppeteer, living your best woods life, is that there is a certain aspect of like, you know, cloud isolation, you know, like, like being, being isolated from you know, the ever churning like information machine. Um, and I'm wondering if that is, if that's like part of, I'm like still forming this thought. I'm wondering if that's like part of the whole farm thing is that it is separate and it is just like a, a like bubble of like a, like an artistic bubble as a you know and is there is there much like connection with what's happening like is there much like zeitgeist poking it's completely possible that there is not yeah um but i i think that's like kind of uh balanced against the international presence that these groups who have hit this level of success have mm-hmm. of like they're being they're being upheld as the zeitgeist despite their isolation and are like brought into show like here's what is happening in the woods and also they're super good at it and they have this international presence because mm-hmm. um, they've been curated um i think yeah i think i mean like that's definitely why bread and puppet is in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. um because they're you know like political radicals mm-hmm. and they uh yeah like their their whole ideal is to create a a society a a more equitable and freer and more loving society like that's why they've isolated i'm wondering what your thought on unplugging is since you do have 
you do have this interest in puppetry that does tend toward isolation, but you are also interviewing folks and like going out and producing content and stuff like that. So I'm wondering how that balance is. Right. Well, I mean, like, I guess I can just say that, like, I'm not a successful woods working puppeteer. That's true. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So, yeah. And and, like, that's, but when I think about the future, that's like definitely a problem that I have. And Mm -hmm. like, I don't think I'll be doing my podcast at that far into the future, but I I don't want to be making my work at the cost of isolation. So, Mm -hmm. and I mean, like, Ingvild Aspily and her company Plexus Polaire and Blind Summit, who are in London. I think they're in London. They're definitely in England. Um, they they are making really high-level, internationally acclaimed work in a city, and they have they have figured out how to do it. It's it's definitely more uh, a U.S. trend mm. than than Europe. So, yeah, I, I think it's completely possible. And I think it doesn't have to be that way, but it's it's fascinating as like an almost constant across uh, across that kind of work. So yeah, cool. Well, we have a few minutes left. Really? Yeah, we just ran through it. Really, damn, it really fun. Um, so the last thing we do with all of our guests is a one minute plug for anything they have upcoming. Sometimes it's very obvious, like plucking a podcast that they've that they produce and have the third season just recently released and ha- is continuing to release. Stop and, it. <laughs> and yeah, all that. Otherwise, uh, we also love hearing about um, shout outs for other folks that you think are doing dope work uh, and, you know, self-care stuff, TV shows, maybe if you have anything that you're watching or movies or books or anything like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the third season of Some Song Magic just started. Uh, the focus is on the breadth of new work. So it's actually moving maybe away from theater artists, exclusively theater artists. So like Liz Anderson, who was the first episode, is producing theater, but comes from an improv comedy background. And there was like a hard improv bent to her work. Uh, I would love to talk to like a contemporary art curator or like a contemporary visual artist and talk about like what it's like making new work in Mm. the art world. Like that must be whack. Um, uh, yeah. And then season four of that, which is ideally starting in January, uh, is a season long run about Goat Island, which was a Chicago based performance group that was here from 1986 to, they finally wound down in 2009 and a bunch of them teach at SAIC. They're like deeply ingrained in Chicago and they, despite the fact that they are not super well known in the US, they basically codified how performance art is taught in the UK. Oh. So I've I've had the immense, immense privilege of getting to go to SAIC, who now holds the Goat Island archive, and just like putting my hands in their brain and just like leafing through all of their papers for 20 odd years and all their notes and like weird tickets they kept and the correspondence they had with curators in the in the UK and in the US and it is terrifying 
but I'm very excited about it. <laughs> That's rad as fuck. Cool investigative arts journalism. That is really cool. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Um. Oh, shout outs. I'm trying to think. Um, I I I like really cannot express how deeply invested I am in Liz Anderson's success. <laughs> um, you should go listen to that episode. You should. You should follow every creative thing she does um i I said in that episode that like it's the hardest i've laughed for an entire month because of her work she's absolutely phenomenal um and uh yeah you should check out rough house the puppet company i work for we just closed our last show or our most recent show cicada um but we'll be at the uh at the arts in the dark halloween parade on saturday um and Oh, media. I feel like everyone should know about John Fa- John Fahey's uh, Dance of Death and Other Plantation Favorites. It's a folk album from the 1960s. I am thoroughly convinced that John Fahey struck a deal with the devil. Um, maybe not. <laughs> but it's, it's like one of the most beautiful, uh, entirely acoustic folk albums in the world um and he was kind of responsible for like discovering and initially recording leo kotke who is now just a wizard of folk he is he is the peak of six and twelve string guitar so yeah that's it (laughs) awesome okay I'm just thoroughly convinced that you have like the most nuanced artistic opinion in the world. It's <laughs> so amazing. Well, and I, and, and to, to your credit, that is why the entire experience of that thing was crazy for me. Because like, just so, what a group of people. Yeah. God. I mean, like, I knew I knew Aaron was smart, but just like getting to be around her for like twenty plus hours was fucking insane. She's so cool. It was a yeah. She's. I'm really. Famous. We're gonna have Kevin. I mentioned this before. Yeah, yeah. Kevin Green, who's yeah, the Kevin also. Kevin theater editor also. for um. Well, not just uh, Amanda, who is yeah. like an establishment journal arts journalist, yeah, yeah. which is really cool yeah. to literally, have met a person. Literally, everyone in that room was supposed to be there. It was so good. Yeah, it was like Clen. It was like Destiny or something. Anyway, um, we should wrap up. Uh, I've been Dan Johansson. I continue to be Maureen Smith. If you want to keep up with what we are up to, there are so many ways that you can do that, as Maureen gives me the episode-ly cue to slow down. Um, You can head over to scopymag.com. I'm actually really excited about that because I just restructured it um, as we are developing and are announcing probably... By the time you've listened to this, we've probably already announced it, but we're announcing our affiliate program, which is went for... Uh, yep, I'm going to talk about that. You should. So we've talked about it a bit on the show, but we're like actually doing that. So you yeah. can check out what that looks like on the page uh, at scopymag.com. And just generally, we've got a new uh, podcast player on the, on the homepage. Um, I'm really happy with the layout right now. So anyway, check out scopymag.com. Otherwise, you can find us on all the social media places on Facebook. That is Scopy Magazine on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, Google Play, and iTunes Podcasts. We are under Scopy Mag, and we spell that S-C-A-P-I 
M-A-G. And as always, I'm here to emphasize the importance of donations. We run on a shoestring budget. Everything that we've been able to do up to this point has been through your generosity. So first of all, thank you so much. Second of all, we could use a little bit more help. If you're in a position to give, you can head to our website, scopymag.com. Head to our about section. Is that still the case? Head to our about section? Nope. Homepage. On our homepage. Uh, Wait a minute. Nope. About section. That still exists. Sorry. It almost um, didn't, is why. But there, it does now. <laughs> you can go to our About section. <laughs> there are a couple ways that you can give. If you... Oh, now I'm off my... There are a couple ways that you can give. You can give on a one-time basis. If you choose to do that, you will have our eternal gratitude. If you choose to give on a monthly level, some cool things will happen. First of all, our next two donors at any level will will receive a free bag of half-wit coffee. At $10 a month, you'll, you'll receive one free session per month of studio photography with Daniel in our space. At $25 a month or above, you'll be a part of our affiliate program. We're grateful to our donors at every level, but our affiliates are individuals, businesses, and organizations who support our mission of uplifting local arts and independent media at a higher level. We believe that such generosity during this time deserves recognition, so our affiliates will be featured on our website with a link to their website or social media as a means of advertisement and will receive a Scopy affiliate window sticker. So, give a little, give a lot, and if you can't give, then listen, participate, and share. Oh, sorry. <coughs> oh, for God's sake. Cool. <laughs> Thanks again so much for listening. Go out and make something. Yep. <laughs>